Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. In her 1818 novel Frankenstein, Mary Shelley wrote, The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of spectres or enchantment. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops and, however impossible as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. Discussing Frankenstein today, I'm Alex Hoseason, nibbling at the liver of Prometheus. I'm Jess Shahan, and I forgot to write something funny to say as I was too distracted by the uh, hideous progeny that takes form of my PhD thesis. I'm Carolyn Kaltofen, and I'm joining this party of pleasure in the defense of women and the other. And I'm Matthew Campbell, Go Bruin Dahlgren Jacks. All right, so... This, I mean, the idea for this program, I mean, it's kind of a book that has a huge shadow, right? But, um, but as you're the one that suggested it, Matt, why? <laughs> because it's so good. <laughs> I mean, it, that's actually really part of the reason. It's a fantastic novel, but also it becomes very apparent reading it very quickly that two things are true. One, there's a lot going on here, and we've kind of forgotten that with all the horror movies, some of which make the point, others don't. But I think the main reason I wanted to do this is it's one of, if not the foundational novel of science fiction. If you're looking for an earlier science fiction novel, uh, maybe Burning Sky, perhaps Thomas More's Utopia, or if you really want to push it out, you could even argue Shakespeare's Tempest. But as a science fiction novel, Frankenstein is the codifier. And its role as a sci-fi novel hasn't really dated all that much. So for its era, it's actually pretty close to hard science. During the novel Victor, who we'll refer to as Victor rather than Frankenstein because confusing, during the novel Victor explicitly says he's not going to explain how his experiments work exactly so no one can copy him, but at the time, using electricity to zap dead bodies back to life was an experiment real people were doing. So from the author's point of view, this is hard sci-fi. And I suppose the second reason that it's really close to science fiction now is we've spoken on the podcast before of the fear of the overreach of science and all the terrible things science might do. Well, that's what this novel's about. So really the first time we set to writing fiction about the possibilities of science, we became scared of what science might do, both physically and what it might mean for us as humans. And so, yeah, foundational work of sci-fi. Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly the case. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm more than a little bit guilty of this. I mean, in terms of focusing on kind of our fears of science after the atomic bomb, right? Which, you know, in, in contemporary period, and, you know, I, I think maybe while the kind of pop culture element of, of, of sci-fi can quite often be focused on the kind of like, look, it's the dramas you know, but with lasers or, you know, whatever else. I mean, a lot of the stuff we have discussed is kind of pushed back against that quite significantly. But I mean, Jess, you, you wanted to suggest that actually it, there's something more there, right? I mean, it goes beyond maybe what we now understand as science fiction. 
It really transcends the genre of science fiction. It doesn't just speak to the nature of science, it speaks to human nature. And in that sense to me, in many ways it isn't what people sort of assume to be the basic sci-fi novel. It's a novel about people that happen to be in this particular situation. And in this case, a particular person, Victor, who makes the choices that he does. And you see the various roads that are closed off to him by action or inaction. It's very much about him and his creation and the world around them. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, it really transcends sci-fi in itself by tying it to very metaphysical debates. Um, I think which Victor sort of at the beginning uses as a drive of why he doing, is doing these things in the first place, why he's actually trying to transcend his boundaries um, of chemistry and so forth. Um, by, I think, what I see in his questions of can you, I think he says, um, does the principle of life proceed? Can you extend life actually beyond death? So he really goes into the metaphysics of death, initiated by, I think, the death of his mother, that really pushes him to question the boundaries of the living using science to maybe extend what is humanly possible, which really ties science and science fiction, something very technological and maybe concrete, to very human sort of emotions and feelings. Yeah, I think there's certainly... I was, I was a bit confused reading it, um, reading it again. I wasn't sure whether this was kind of the kind of cultural understanding of Frankenstein or the the fact that I was reading the book for the second time. But I realised when, when he's talking about, I mean, after his mum's died and all the rest of it, he's actually talking about reversing the decay of yeah. muscles and, and, and so and so on, and how, how long can you leave them buried before they're irreversible and all of that kind of stuff, which is a slightly different understanding of his creation than the kind of typical, well, I bolted together all these dead body parts and half of the creation is, is, is rotting and all the, all the rest of it, right? I mean, it moves it away from those kind of typical horror tropes, right? I mean, where, yeah. you know, I, I mean, in, in a lot of understandings, the creation, I mean, he's or the monster, right? I mean, you know, he's effectively a zombie, mm. right? That kind of becomes conscious or, or, or whatever else. But I mean, in, in this, it's a very kind of definite question of, is it possible to reverse what has happened and reverse taking in the most direct possible sense of if something's rotted can it be reconstituted and so on yeah which i think are really concrete questions about human finitude at a time when it was written where you really were trying to um push boundaries medicine was advancing you could actually extend um life and with new technology which is why it makes it sci-fi again you know be not the ultra-human or uber-human. At the same time, though, he doesn't really realize the hideousness of his creation until it's almost fully formed. It's as if he's in denial of this until he's almost to the point of making his creation come to life. Yeah, I think even when he starts making the, the female creation, he gets reabsorbed right into that kind of beauteous image of a body coming together. Right before you know, some outside circumstance forces him to kind of see it as, as as some kind of terrible thing again. But you know, 
those both of those times he tries to create something, that process of creation makes it beautiful for him. Now, what's interesting with the female creature, that, so the first creature demands he builds a mate, and what disgusts Victor about the second creature is not that it's physically ugly, it's its capacity to reproduce. That's what repulses him, that's why he tears the thing to pieces and then throws the pieces in the sea. It's not the physical repulsiveness. There's something more fundamental about it that it's wrong rather than just ugly. Is it that it's potentially independent of his interventions? Yeah, which raises questions over the idea of God and creation. And yeah, yeah. Because he, 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 he expects the esteem of his creation as a father. And he doesn't receive it. And he's somewhat hurt by this. Well, weirdly, I think... I mean, that's also the point of the book. I mean, for, for the first part of the first series of his encounters with his creation, it's, he's a bit of a dick about it, right? I mean, it's effectively that he, he's made this thing and then he's repulsed by it for whatever reason and you can dress it up in all the romantic language you like and we'll talk about that later, but you can dress it up in all this kind of language of, oh, I was struck by its horrible aspect in the moonlight or, you know, whatever... Right, but I mean, the point is when he, when the question arises as to whether there, he could make another one, and whether the monster or the creation can legitimately demand a partner, then it's also the point at which questions over rights and responsibilities and all of that kind of stuff arises. And I, I think this is one of the things in the book that was always a little bit kind of weird to me, because the first part of... Well, the, you know, the first series of encounters with the monster, um, or what he perceives as the monster, seems to me quite profoundly irrational. I mean, he doesn't think about it in any sense. He runs away, and then, you know, it gives no thought as to the possibility of it even being rational in, or thinking in any way, other than being an automaton. Is that intentional to the text, though? So is Victor's repulsion the repulsion of the peasants the creation meets? Is that a reflection of their moral failings, that they can't see past its visage? Or is it that we as humans will react that way instinctively? Is that our fault? Is that our failing? I don't know. I mean, it just struck me as a little bit melodramatic. I mean, in the sense that it seems like it seemed to me at the time, and I read this on a train, so I had six hours to read it, three hours on one train and then three hours on the way back. And, and uh, uh, when you're trying to read it like that, I mean, you start getting a little bit annoyed with the language, right? But I mean, it, I, I realised that there was something, it, sorry, something deeper there. And that was that there's a particular cultural climate in which this is written, that it's possible to consider something so ugly that it reflects on the quality of its soul. Which is reflected in William and Justine, whose innocence is not only stated in their actions, but it's very much considered in their beauty in that this dear sweet looking child with the murderer's mark upon his neck or Justine who's just this innocent you know maid who could not possibly be evil because she's so pretty and plain yeah I mean it's certainly the case that I mean you know the characteristic way in which the creation kills things is by strangling them right and of course the, the dark bruise the you know the, like you say the mark of the murderer or whatever I mean it's a, it's a blemish upon their otherwise kind of at least implied to be perfect appearance what are we to make of the blind man there? So the creature at some point is attempting to befriend, befriend humanity. 
and having observed a family for some time, realizes that his best chance is that he can approach the elderly blind man who will not see that he's physically ugly and will therefore be able to measure the worth of his soul, a soul that reads Milton and gathers firewood for the poor. And this seems to work until other humans turn up and see how monstrous the creature is and attack him. What role is the blind man playing here morally? Well, uh, I'm not entirely sure, but of course, I think, for me, the blind man just shows how the complicated role Victor has, that he sees his creation as hideous, because they're actually, as I would, given, like, judging of the love he received from his father, Victor, um, he should be blind as well, not literally blind, but physically unconditional, blind, but right. unconditional yeah. to to his creation, which in is kind of his child. So, in fact, the fact that the the blind man doesn't have any problem with the creation um, before he finds out about his um, appearance highlights that Victor, in theory, should probably have the same predisposition towards his creation. I would assume. For me, though, it speaks to sort of the transition between fears to stereotypes to prejudices. The idea that you see something that you've not seen before, that it shocks you so much that you don't know how you react. If a monster of some form walked into this room, how would we react? Would we walk up to it and ask it its name? I'd think that'd be unlikely. Well, there's only one exit. (laughs) (laughs) we'd be forced to consider a strategy (laughs) based on that well the the idea of prejudice and stereotype runs elsewhere in the novel though doesn't it it's not just the monster there are ideas of gender and race and religion yeah I think it's one of the more transferable ideas that you get from this novel it's not just the concept of alienation but of seeing both one who's created someone that's an outsider but the outsider themselves So in this sense, the creation, he wants to rage. He feels that he should have this right to rage against the society that rejects him. And yet at the same time, uh, Victor doesn't take kindly to this, obviously, and doesn't react well to it. And I can't help but draw parallels to the idea that someone who is secondary or tertiary in a society, someone who's oppressed, is expected to just take it rather than speak up or speak out or do something or to just even feel angry about the circumstances in which they're in. Well, I think importantly, the the creation articulates that in terms of what Victor had. Yeah. Right? And and this is essential. You know, it, it, it's... If, if you wanted... Look, you've made a person, right? And, and perhaps even... You know, perhaps even he needs to argue that he's a person, right, as opposed to a monster. But, you know, you've, you've made a person, right? Now, what is it that, you know, with, with no thought as to the nature of that person, right? And, he come, and, and, and the creation comes along and says, well, I am whatever you made me to be, right? You know, you put me out in the world and abandoned me, then those are the circumstances I'm reacting to. If you gave me the chance to be good, which in this novel seems to at least equate to having family or, or at the very least companionship, you know, then that, that is what he would be. And, and 
again, Victor's reaction to this is, I mean, it, it's not a considered response. I mean, actually, I find it funny because Victor seems to give him more credit um, when he tells the, the kind of... <clears throat> um, Walton, the kind of guy on the ship who's the kind of framing narrative who's trying to find the North Pole, when he tells Walton how wily and convincing the creature can be, right now, I mean, wily and convincing, fair enough, but at no point does he consider the fact that the creature might actually be telling the truth. It's certainly implied that the teacher's telling. So there's the scene in the mountains where they have their first proper conversation, and there it very much feels like the monster or the creature is voicing Mary Shelley's ideas on the role of humanity and explicitly parallels to the role of women in society. So Mary Shelley's mother was Mary Wollstonecraft. And the monster's calling for very on-topic things, so the monster comments that it's bettered itself through education and is clearly intelligent and articulate and is therefore not less than Victor is. Um, the monster argues that it should have freedom from its creator because it's a thinking being that can articulate its own decisions. I mean, the parallels with those ideas are kind of obvious. And it speaks as well to the parent-child relationship. And I think that's a theme that you can't help but come back to again and again when speaking on this. Particularly because you have to ask, at what point does the child, say given enough knowledge or time or experience, take responsibility for their own action? At what point does the child, or the progeny that commits murder decide to be responsible for that in and of themselves. I mean, uh, where does the parent's responsibility end or begin? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we're, we're seeing this book come out, I mean, not long after we're starting to get, at least in mainstream political discourse, ideas that it's nurture, not nature, right? You know, so you have Rousseau's Emile come out, which basically says, well, if you locked a kid in a room, what would he learn, right? And actually, that's precisely what the creation ends up doing, is having some kind of limited access to very specific ways of understanding the world, at the core of which is family, right? And, and Rousseau attempted to demonstrate that if, you know, that, if that happened, that would, li that would be all they knew, right? And I mean, actually, there's quite a nice parallel in the book, because I don't know whether it is literally, but the creation refers to it as his kennel. It's obviously the place you keep a dog. But that, that organic relationship with society, I think, is, is becoming apparent. So I think, no, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it's certainly the case that these things are becoming more current at this point. I mean, they haven't yet come to their conclusion in, in, in ideas of kind of absolute socialisation. Um, because Wollstonecraft, at least, you know, if we're going to draw that lineage between Wollstonecraft and Shelley, I mean, Wollstonecraft's still a, a liberal at heart. Rousseau would presumably be quite happy with this portrayal because oh, absolutely. The, the, the family that the creature observes is this small peasant farming family <laughs> who have a hard life with a tiny bit of assistance, they're doing okay, and they, they're, they're friends with each other, and they're really close, and they play music, and, and they're they're, French. their sorrow is somehow <laughs> romantic rather than just being crushing poverty, so... I think the Rosso parallel bears out. Yeah, but I think also like there's actually a much stronger direct criticism on bad parenting by Shelley here because she sort of in length describes the really good parents um, Victor's parents are and all the love they gave all their children throughout all their life and dedication and so forth. But then Victor 
creates a child of his own, as it were, and abandons it immediately. And even though it may have the potential to educate itself, it doesn't, there's no direction or no, I suppose, moral lessons to that if you just leave it sort of unloved, um, which just really contrasts good parenting at the beginning and really bad parenting on Victor's behalf because he's so self-centered and I still don't understand and maybe we could perhaps talk about that a little bit why he abandoned his creation because he got sick sort of in the process of doing it but there was no real sort of he was just horrified by its looks but surely you should be accustomed to what you produce the whole time that you're not sort of really surprised by what it looks like and then all of a sudden it's this mad hideous creature that he's so frightened of and it can do nothing to redeem itself. Like it can learn language, can be very humanized, but there's just no real explanation, not explanation given why he's so frightened of it. Well, it speaks, I think, partly to that denial that he has while creating it. It's mm. as if one's absorbed into, say, a work of art, and then they step back and look at it and realize that they've just done a terrible job or just nothing like they intended. But, uh, that's but there's also, a transformative moment. That's also, the, I mean, the argument would be that's the difference between the scientist and the engineer. The, the, the one argument would be that Victor builds what he builds to find out how it's done and to prove that he can do it. And he has not the consequences of what happens after he has done it. Can we split the atom? Yeah, sure we can. Oh, we don't care if we created the atom bomb. There was a scientist in the Netherlands who successfully sequenced a type of influenza the human immune system couldn't track at all because of the scientific merit of inquiring for that, but not caring for the consequence. So if this is a book about the overreach of science, which it may or may not be, then Victor's lack of care for his creation is because it no longer interests him. Because the challenge was, can he create life? And the answer was yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly a... I mean, he talks about this obsession with fame, right? Um, but cu curiously, there's very little... And, and I realised this when I was reading it because, of course, you approach this having, well, maybe or maybe not seen films and, you know, the kind of cultural heritage of Frankenstein of him standing going, it's alive, in a terrible German accent and so on, lightning and, you know, whatever. And, and, but what I realised was that in the novel, and I couldn't tell whether this was romantic prudishness over the process of birth, but he is in it for the achievement because he doesn't describe anything other than... And of course, he's telling this as a story and he doesn't want to tell how he's done it, but, he, you know, at the end of my labours or, or something, you know, and the body twitches a bit and then it's alive, right? Right, mm -hmm. let's move on. I ran away, right? You know, because, I mean, it's, it's quite a self-centred narrative. But, you know, there's, there's very little about actually what he did. And I think part of that too, because we can't talk about this without talking about the nature of work or the nature of labor in this context. So it's this singular, a self-absorbed, sort of self-centric pursuit of his creation. It's something that I think speaks to the relationship between um, men and work. I've even seen this quoted in literature on studies on women in work, the idea that there's a right to pursue to the exclusion of all else, something that one desires without planning or consequence or thought, 
but also the exclusion of those he cares about, the exclusion of the outside world, the cloistered nature of it. And he's the only character in the novel who does this. So every other character, their goodness is defined by how closely they relate to other human beings. So the poor peasant family all love each other deeply, and Safi, the um, Arab woman who marries Felix, comes back to care for them, and Victor's family care very deeply about him, and even Walton, the Arctic explorer, is writing letters back and forth with his, to his sister, worrying about whether they're actually going to get to her. And Victor, the man of this great work, is completely cut off from the rest of humanity by it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's definitely a certain element of myth-making as far as that's concerned, right? I mean, there's been kind of, you know, in the kind of left-wing media, I mean, there's kind of repeated examples of arguments which state that the kind of ideal liberal human being is effectively, to all intents and purposes, like, or at least in the sphere of work, corporate work, banking and so on, is effectively encouraged to be what is, with regard to other people, psychotic, right? Or at least sociopathic. And so I, I don't know because there's some... He states early on that he was driven by... And he's not quite sure how much of it is, is the challenge, but he was like, well, you know, the Philosopher's Stone, anyone can be rich, right? What I'm after is something more fundamental. And I mean, it's certainly implied that there's a kind of I want to help humanity idea here, but I mean, it disappears quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. and agreed. And it actually switches in the way that he describes himself in the process of making or creating that he's often disgusted by what he's doing um, and sort of like has to block these thoughts and rather than actually advancing humanity he's quite wary of what he's actually doing sort of the dark side of what he's doing which I think is probably why he sort of repulsed it which mm -hmm. then why he maybe abandons it entirely because he knows that this what he creates is just the embodiment of his maybe own evil pursuit of, you know, pushing boundaries where them shouldn't be pushed at him. It never came across to me as that altruistic in her writing of him. In fact, in some ways he comes across as this petulant child that lost his mommy that wants to find some way to get her back or prevent anyone from dying. Or, but it loses that quality. It's the consumption of the work that takes over very quickly, even. Well, I think... I mean, I. I was wondering when I was reading this again that, I mean, the book and at least having read the prefaces and stuff, I mean, it's quite self-consciously reflecting upon, you know, I mean, it's called All the Modern Prometheus, right? And you've got Paradise Lost and Shakespeare and so on and so on. And this kind of lack of comment on his motivation, I was wondering whether, and I can't speak to this if anyone's a historian of 19th century literature in the room, but, like, I was wondering whether... Victor is already a trope at this point. Is it possible for her to talk about this kind of person, not go into any great detail, but line it up with um, Odysseus and so and so on, um, and, and, and then just kind of say, well, you know, oh, we all know about this kind of, in inverted commas, enlightenment man. Mm -hmm. um, this is a story concerning that kind of person. 
Yeah, I I actually thought this saying that he's sort of like Jesus. this new modern enlightened being because he states multiple times you know, a good be like a good human is the rational one where you keep out you know right you know your, and, and I suppose passions. you know and you've got faced by this point and all yeah, that kind of and, stuff and um, I I have very much thought of him in in this way also even though of course Victor talks the whole time. It's very hard to gauge his personality. Like he says a lot, but you don't actually know him as well as other characters. At least I find, which speaks to me that, that he's more of a general trope. Um, you had you had something to say about like fifth-hand information as far as the book was. Yeah. Concerned. So we're hearing, as far as we know, the entire book we're getting as a set of letters sent by the explorer Walton to his sister, um, whose name is Samuel, uh, and then we apparently get this. And so, by the time you've got anything Victor tells us is third-hand information, anything the monster tells us is fourth-hand, and therefore, anything that Safi tells Felix and the monster overhears is fifth-hand. So, how much of that we lose in transition, we don't know, and Alex commented at one point that that might be deliberate. But the other problem is, the things Victor says he cares deeply about, he clearly doesn't. So, yes, I love Elizabeth, and I will marry her, and yeah, he has no interest in Elizabeth whatsoever. So I think it's very deliberate that we don't actually know who this man is, because there's professed obsessions he doesn't care about, uh, apart from arguably the fact that once his family has been destroyed by the monster, spoilers, he realises how horrifying this is. But, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with the take on his personality. I think at the same time, too, it's uh, also an archetype of sort of a working man consumed with his work as well. And the, this idea, not just for me throughout the book, but also it speaks to scholarly pursuits. Um, even what we do here with PhDs and writing theses or theses and really being truly completely consumed by our work to the exclusion of all else that it's almost an inherent danger in what we do if one allows them to be, or themselves to be completely consumed by it. So I think it speaks to multiple archetypes, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly be the first to argue, and I have argued many times, that actually there's something profoundly arrogant in what we do as academics, right? Because we have this driving idea that what we do is somehow good for humanity, but yet we don't often know how that how we want that to work out or how that is to be the case and, 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 and so on. I mean, you know, I don't know because I don't think in that kind of romantic language, but I mean, there's certainly aspects of the book which I read it and I was like, yeah, I stayed up all night the other night because I was trying to <laughs> figure something out or, or whatever else, but I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure about... I, I, I think that there's also quite a strong assumption of his ability to be autonomous in the book oh yeah I we were on our way to Scotland to talk to this guy but we stopped in Oxford for three months and, 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 and so on and that kind of stuff rankles me a bit oh, well he's clearly a, he's clearly a wealthy individual there's, there's no real indication of what it is they're all doing for money in this story so I think being a gentleman of leisure I mean this is the life that Mary and Percy Shelley lived to an extent they yeah. travelled around places and stayed places and chatted to people so I think that's of the era and its class rather than no, I think it's certainly the case but I think when we're drawing kind of immediate lessons from the book right 
you know, you kind of have to be careful about those those things. And, you know, I, I, I've said before that I think one of the worrying trends in kind of... Well, it's not even a trend. It's been going on for a long time. You know, the, the BBC is great at costume dramas, right? But what is it people love about costume dramas? Well, all of a sudden they love the class system. <laughs> you know, oh, you know, oh, that kind of valiant young valet or, or whatever else, you know. And, and the, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, you're in a position where you have to read the book as kind of, well, Victor created life and then had to go and fill out a form to report his findings and the potential impact that this might have on several key stakeholders, you know, which is a very different circumstance. I mean, the, the, I mean, you were saying earlier that, you know, there's nowhere in the book where he's referred to as doctor, right? We're talking about a very different idea of what scholarly activity is. I think when it comes to class, Shelley plays with that fairly cleverly because what she does is all the pieces of opulence they experience, the wedding, the riverboat trips, the days on the lake, none of these things distract Victor from the, ho- the, na- the nature of the horror he's created. So oh, there's, there's, there's potentially a, a reading of it which says that these trappings were not supposed to enjoy them and they are fundamentally hollow. Yet at the same time, he speaks so harshly of the nurse that brings him back to life. Uh, he says, she was a hired nurse, the wife of one of the turnkeys, and her countenance expressed in all those bad qualities which often characterize that class. And he notes that none of the Irish, apart from the magistrates, speak French, which yeah. is a black yeah. mark against them, because that's the mark of an educated fellow. But I, I took that more, because, yeah, I can see how Shelley tries to sort of temper that class problem by them always taking on the poor and being very kind da, 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 da. and I saw that comment more as a comment against women as so many in that book sort of putting women into a role here it's a class one in other parts just a useless one where you can abort the whole creature by just ripping it and tearing it apart and chucking it or being murdered so I, I saw it more as a another attack on the active role of women that they aim able maybe be able to do something good. And that extends to the natural world. And I suppose this will link us to the conversation about being a romantic novel, but the natural world is gendered as female. And Mm. there's the line, uh, with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness, I pursued nature to her hiding places. Victor is very clearly a masculine figure who does wrong to the feminine throughout the book. Even if he's not actively killing the female characters, his actions get them killed. And he defiles nature, gendered as female. He also speaks to women as possessions. Uh, Elizabeth has very little of her own initiative in many ways. He speaks of her um, sort of trivial pursuits. And also speaks to going back to take her as his possession, as she was always meant to be. Yeah, he, he believes he has a right to her from childhood. Yeah, because she was her present his present and um, you know all women in this book are actually fairly passive they don't really do anything themselves they are being sort of made to act in certain ways um, yeah, but when you, when, you, when you say that all women in this book is that are you actually saying all women that are talked about, or nature or whatever, but all feminine things that are talked about in the voice of Victor. As, yeah. a, as yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. to in, this yeah, book is structurally he... sexist. Well, 
No, because Shelley wrote it, but I think she wanted to send a clear message mm-hmm. of the role of women then. So that's, and you can't transcend that however much you wanted, the structure you're in, mm-hmm. i.e. in the book, won't let you. I think she's also doing it in the language of the time to be perceived by her readers and perhaps even thinking towards future generations in that way, that speaking on women without talking about their pursuits does so in a way that really speaks to how women's considerations, how their ideas were perceived. She reflects what she sees, but in doing so also critiques it. These trivial pursuits of women may not be so trivial, but she critiques that idea that they are. Mm. The only time when actually women do get a bit more leverage um, is, what's her name, Safia, who sort of like arranges this plot to escape um, this, yeah the Arab or the Turk, I don't know. Um, which unfortunately then is couched in a very horrible understanding of sort of like... Race and <laughs> Orientalism. It's like, oh yeah. my God, Islam and the other. We can't deal with that as enlightened Western human beings. But fair enough, it was written in, uh, you know, 18... What was it? 1818? Oh, yeah, the, so. the, the line is that Safi wishes to escape to a place where women can take up a role in society. <laughs> And so she moves to um, either Switzerland or just over the border in France to live with the peasant family because that's that's the step up from where she perceives yeah. it. But there's, I think you can see Mary Shelley giving women a significant voice in the book. In the it's effectively a, an epistolary novel. Everything is a story being told by one character to another character. And between Elizabeth, Safi, Felix's sister, whose name I've forgotten, I'm not sure she actually gets given a name. Um, and Agatha. Agatha and oh, yeah. Walton's sister um, oh and Justine who tells the story of uh, the night where she was falsely accused of murder women have a voice throughout the novel and that voice is almost always used to highlight the fact that they cannot control either society or the male characters yeah inferior do you think that there's something I mean if, if, if we're going to take this novel and, and, and say you know there's lots of really really interesting stuff in it um, you know, as far as sci-fi goes and, and everything else. Do you think there's anything that um, is essential about about the kind of romantic language that's used? Yeah. I, I, I find it quite a good contrast to... Um, but you like this kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I... You've got a book yeah, of Of course, I, I, I like this, but also I think it builds a really nice contrast as... Um, romantic language from romanticism where you highlight nature and all that precisely in a novel where you challenge nature as well so it, I think it, it's it's a really lovely dialectic that's being created here between sort of like heart science and flowery language as it were to be in really simple terms um, in a way that also Victor who deems himself as first philosopher and then scientist constantly writes in this language where usually you would think of a scientist or even the story of a scientist creating something as a more sort of like couched in practical language. So I think um, her, her decision to, to choose otherwise and, you know, to some extent annoy some people with the language um, 
it's probably quite deliberate. Yeah, I mean, romanticism in literature can be characterised as the idea that you use emotional language instead of precise rationalistic language. So you don't describe a mountain or a lake in terms of the water or the stone, but in terms of the emotion it elicits. And in that respect, Frankenstein is a romantic novel, but what's interesting is arguably Victor's passion rather than reason is what leads to his downfall. So while it uses the language of romanticism, I wonder if it's actually questioning the wisdom of approaching life in that way. The other thing to say, of course, is that Mary Shelley herself, there's Percy Shelley and then there's Lord Byron, she's going to inherit a style of language and writing that's going to be reflective. So one wonders if this was ever going to be a non-romanticism novel. Yeah. Well, I think that's certainly the case, but, I mean, Victor gives up on any scientific kind of vocation as soon as his creation is born. Everything after that is fear and loathing um, and various overwhelming emotions and fainting fits and all of the other things that you get throughout the kind of romantic tradition that kind of makes me wonder how they ever got anything done but there's also an extent to which again I mean I suppose in the novel he's constantly talking to other people right so I mean he's talking in that that kind of high-flown high-flown language of, of of the kind of romantic ideal um, but yeah so I mean but what about I mean do you think in those kind of modern I mean, if we were to modernise this, I, I think that that's something that would be extremely difficult to regain. I, I, I don't think we have... I mean, actually, I was talking to someone the other day who said that that romantic kind of element is still preserved in America to a far greater degree than it is here. But generally speaking, I think it's incredibly hard to regain that kind of idea. I mean, to set up that juxtaposition is, is, is really difficult. Yeah, but that's partly because we think of nature differently now. And it's not just because of the language, but sort of the divine nature and sublime nature that is to only reproduce through the language. But that's, I, I think, what romantics got at in the first place, right? We don't have the sense anymore because we all, since then, altered nature so much or technologized nature so much that that opposition sort of slowly started blending anyway so yeah I agree it would be very hard to actually reproduce the spirit in which the book was written we've also, and through the language it was written yeah. we've also it, we still ask questions about this but the idea of the, the scientist is doing the work of God is omnipresent in the novel and was omnipresent in science and we've not only stepped away from that we've almost uh, corralled the two away from each other that science is the work of reason and God is religion and faith, the, the two don't mix. And I think that's one of the fundamental things you couldn't modernise about the novel, is that Victor is playing God, literally. He's Prometheus, he is Lucifer from Paradise Lost, he's various other metaphors. And I don't think we view scientists that way anymore. I don't think we'd consider what he was doing to be fundamentally an act of heavenly creation, and more we'd see it as zapping a brain into you. Well, I mean, more broadly, then, what I'm trying to say is that one of the continuities of, of, of the novel, for me, at least when I was reading it the other days, is that 
I found it really interesting that the characters find it really difficult to label things as evil. Right. And, and, and actually I think that this is one of the, one of the great kind of things that the creation brings to the world is the naivety, right? He's effectively a child, right? The naivety with which he's able to say that things are evil. And I'm not sure any of the other characters in the book are able to do that. I mean, the blind man is, I think. Um, but I mean, the blindness is in some way another form of naivety, right? I mean, it's yeah. quite literally naivety to the world around you. So, I mean, do you think the book's got a lot to say about that kind of grand theme? I can't help but think of it, though, as... And I suppose I have a very different reading of it than you both, because I do associate the science of it with sort of the mystical, should I say, spiritual or whatever you want to call it, aspects of it. Because in looking at it, I, I couldn't help but think through so much of the creation process, what right has he to do this? And it wasn't some sort of, would even go so far to say moralistic judgment or anything, but just thinking, who is he to play with such powers that he doesn't even begin to understand? And I wouldn't necessarily associate that with, say, spirituality or religion, but more so the arrogance of humanity. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I think that's probably a very suitable description because he, oh, yeah, Victor at length describes sort of just his own, oh, he couldn't wait to do these things. There's no real like consideration of, I'm doing this for the greater good, I'm doing this. Actually, for scientific pursuit, it was like when he locked himself up, it was just because he really had the need, the urge to do these things. Um, and obviously at no time he, ref he reflected upon the consequences, which just highlights his immediate satisfaction of the need, of his needs. Um, but also them putting himself into this position of power, like who is he to do that? That's never something that crossed his mind, which reflects upon how he perceives himself. So I, that links to the question of the novel's ending. So the idea of should Victor have done what he did? Not creating a creature that kills people, but should he have tried to create life? And that novel's addressed in a contra that idea is addressed in a contradictory manner right at the end, where the Arctic ship they're on is icebound, and he turns to the captain and says, Don't get yourself killed. Don't destroy your life for the sake of exploration and fame. And then the ship's crew come in and they're petitioning the captain to say that, look, if the ship doesn't get crushed by the ice when it, un when it breaks up, can we just go home? At which point, Victor turns around to the crew and immediately gives this impassioned speech about how they should totally go on to the bitter end no matter what happens. For greatness. And then he dies. And these two things sit side by side and seem to be two potential answers to that question. Does he have the right and should he do these things? And yet Victor doesn't know at the end. And I wonder what people think of the ending there. Yeah, I, well, I would, I would again ascribe it to sort of the selfishness and the question, who is he to do that? Because obviously he has the responsibility over various lives. And 
only for his own end goal of this being being killed, he endangers others, um, which again reflects perhaps selfishness in scientific pursuit or in humanity itself, if you say that it is a reflection of humanity. Um, well, I, th I, th I think for me, I mean, you're, you're right to say they're juxtaposed in a way, but I think that in some ways, I mean, if I was to view this in kind of grand statement terms, what Shelley's inaugurating here is the ability to think about that. Right, throughout the entirety of the novel, Victor is, is driven. Right? This is something the romantic language, and this is why it annoys me, covers up. Right? Because at no point is anyone legitimately able to say to Victor, you're being a bit of a prat, because he's got the legitimacy of the romantic drive. You know, and associating that directly with science is what allows him to do what he does, right? As you know, and, and see it as in some way a legitimate activity that, of, of course, you know, of course he can't relate it to thought and more broad themes and actually talking about it because he's driven mm. by something, right? And you end up with these kind of weird teleologies in, in romantic literature because of that, you know, this kind of, you know, well, you know, oh, your excuse is, oh, you know, I was being true to myself. Well, that doesn't matter as soon as you relate it back to other people. And I think this is the point I was trying to make with the evil thing, is actually what's happening here is we're able to talk about things being good or bad or being right or wrong or should he have done it or should he not have done it only at the point. So these value judgments aren't set, uh, are actually, at the end of the book, separated from the nature thing because you're able to talk about it and relate it to other people, which is throughout the book is completely impossible, at least for Victor. And I, I, I think that, you know, that, that's the cautionary tale and that's what kind of Walton realises and eventually turns around because he, unlike Victor, was able to relate his judgments to its context. We assume he turns around. We don't actually know what happens I'm to them. I'm pretty sure he says he turns around. Oh, right, okay. Well, it also assumes a certain level of coherence at the end for him. And it, it, we assume from this that he's making these contradictory statements, but given the state of his mind at the time, that doesn't necessarily mean they're contradictory. In his state, they may actually both make sense to him, and it may only be at that point that he can see both sides of the coin. And it's only at that point, after telling a story and perhaps even rationalizing it to himself, that he can take both of those perspectives at the same time and not have to do, decide or maybe even agree with both ideas. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how well that ties into the overall discussion of the ending, but I think what we could also address here is the relationship between Victor and the creator, uh, the creation. Um, because in the end, even though Victor is so afraid of what he has created, he gives the advice of exploration to others, which means even though he may regret what he, we, he had done, he gives that advice to others, as it were, just on a larger scale. Um, which then led me to think, well, why did he never attempt to kill his creation, and why does his creation never attempt to kill him? 
but actually in fact um oh no did he kill her or did he die and so he i don't think Vi victor attempts to kill the creature oh, did he? multiple okay. points during the novel he shoots it and the, the creature's fairly badly injured um, I thought someone else, else shot him, but he carries pistols. But the creature explicitly says why he won't kill Victor. Okay. The creature says that he's doing this to torment him, mm, to make okay. him suffer. I'm the man responsible for bringing him into the world and abandoning him into you. But then he's a very like. But then when he when Victor dies, the creature takes the body and promises to burn them both on a pile. Um, yeah, but my natural inclination would be like, oh, you're free, kind of like the person who gave you this. Why would you then self? Why would you kill yourself unless you're actually very tied to your yeah. master, as it were? Why wouldn't you see it as a freedom? But instead, you kill yourself or kill both of them. Or was this Victor's only way of killing the creature, because the creature had given indications that at that point he would be willing to no longer walk the earth once his creator was gone, once that revenge was complete. Mm. Yeah, and. Maybe that was the only solution he could see, just as with the um, convincing the sailors not to mutiny. Um, perhaps that was merely a ploy designed to convince them to pause and wait instead of immediately taking over the ship to give time for the captain to say, let's turn around because you wanted to. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily take the kind of conspiratorial line there, right? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily... The you know, oh, Victor was pretending to be asleep all along, so the monster would kill himself and both of them, and, you know, then it would be over. But, I mean, it is certainly in line with the kind of Paradise Lost story of, you know, kind of the devil's only existence or only being is in rebellion against God and, 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 and you know, whatever. You know, so you, you do get these kind of, well, this is my... I mean, I think now we'd use the word destiny, but I don't think that really encapsulates what I'm trying to say, right? I mean, the entirety of my being tends towards um, the resolution of that one way or another. Well, the other question to ask is, what world did the creature have left to live in? The only pleasure he got was from nature, from being away from people, or at least not being seen by them. So what world did he have left? Was he truly free? Would well, he ever be free? I think in that context, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he got joy from nature. I think he kind of exhausted the possibilities that, and this is a kind of J.S. Mill phrase, I'm not, I think that was before this. No, it was, maybe. Um, you know, he, he, he didn't have access to the higher pleasures, right, without people. And the only person he had was Victor. You know, he had been refused anyone else by Victor, at which point every aspect of social life for the creation is dominated by its refusal by Vic, um, on the part of Victor. And therefore, you know, that, that is all it has. And that's why I sort of question whether he could ever be free at that point. What is there left? Yeah, I mean, to take the, to take the kind of childlike aspect of it, right, he literally does not know... Right, I mean, I, I think it's implied quite heavily in the book that the only freedom children know is that that their parents give them. And I think it also speaks to hope as well, because he doesn't really know hope or sort of the strength or endurance to think that it could be better. He doesn't have any visions of that because he's never had that experience of it. 
because every time he's dared to hope, it's been crushed. Mm. Yeah, which is why I would explain that he doesn't feel himself free, but doomed or, yeah, to die, or free to die, as it were, I suppose, rather. Um, well, free to die. Good point to end. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks very much, um, everyone. Um, just a reminder, um, if you think Frankenstein was a monster or wasn't a monster or whatever, you can tweet us at Social Sci-Fi, and we're now available on iTunes, uh, so uh, you can subscribe for instant updates. Uh, our next programme will be discussing something. Uh, we think it's Watchmen, but uh, don't quote us on that. So. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Thanks, everyone.